you stay encouraged in life? And how do you present your, prevent yourself from becoming discouraged in your life? Or maybe we can ask it this way with some deeper reflection. How do you stay encouraged in your life without becoming prideful and self-reliant? And at the same time, how do you prevent yourself from becoming so discouraged that you resign into chronic pessimism and even hopeless despair? Andy Davis, pastor of First Baptist Church of Durham, North Carolina, wrote a book about six years ago called Revitalize. It's a book aimed primarily at pastors and church leaders, but it's also a book that any Christian can read. So if you want to look up Andy Davis, Revitalize, might be a book you want to read uh, next year. It's a book that all Christians can benefit from if you're seeking to build up your church for God's glory. It's a book filled with wisdom and insight, but also important lessons learned as God used Pastor Andy to see his local church revitalized. It's a personal and autobiographical story after pastoring for nearly 20 years at the time the book was written. It's an honest, charitable, and transparent account of how God brought a spiritually dying and deeply toxic church back to biblical health and gospel faithfulness. One of the words of wisdom that Pastor Andy pins down in the book that really is applicable to all Christians of every generation. It's timeless wisdom. Is in a chapter entitled, Rely on God, Not Yourself. Rely on God, Not Yourself. Listen to what he says. God alone can give life, and God alone can revive a dying church. One of the greatest lessons for anyone yearning to see a church revitalized is to learn how to rely on God alone. What we may underestimate, though, is how repugnant self-reliance is to God and how pervasive it is in us, how difficult it is to detect, and how stubborn it is to drive out. Self-reliance is so deeply rooted that it may be very difficult to detect and, and hard to eradicate once detected. One of the greatest ways to expose this enemy of God's glory is to gauge your heart when you look at the challenges you face in church revitalization. He goes on to say challenges such as zeal for God's glory has been reduced to a mere flicker. Numbers have dwindled. Finances are diminishing. Nominal Christians are in control with their worldly outlook. Evangelism has been non-existent for years, and the future looks dim. On top of all that, some church members are vocal in their opposition to clear biblical preaching, while the stench of hidden sin is wafting through their lives. These and many other obstacles face you as you look down the road ahead. If at that moment you feel overwhelming despair, you are indulging in self-reliance. However, if you feel a surging confidence in what you will be able to achieve by your gifts and persuasiveness and are looking forward to the challenge as an opportunity to show what you can do, you too are also indulging in self-reliance. Despair 
and arrogance are two sides of the same coin, and that coin is called self-reliance. So, beloved, where are you at today? With this inward battle of this stubborn and sinful two-sided coin, the two-sided coin of self-reliance. Think back recent years, recent months, recent weeks of your life as you've been facing challenges in your life. Is despair or arrogance showing up in your heart? Is despair or arrogance showing up in your heart when you're trying to revitalize and strengthen our church? Stand up for biblical morality in the public school system? Trying to turn a financially struggling business around into a prosperous enterprise? Staying focused and hopeful in the midst of fearful unknowns with your health? Remaining kind and patient when friends let you down? When friends abandon you, hurt you, or even turn on you? Is despair or arrogance showing up in your heart when you're aiming to persevere in that toxic marriage, that marriage filled with tension, or maybe a marriage just simply lacking love and joy? Persevere in parenting that is disappointing and seemingly fruitless. Persevere in evangelizing unbelieving family and friends while getting fierce pushback from them in return. Persevere in discipling believers who don't seem to be getting it. In actuality, they seem to be getting worse. Persevere in trusting God's sovereignty over our own country while fighting the temptation to have a hardened and jaded heart towards how the government and those above us are leading our country. Or if it's not perseverance and despair and arrogance that we're struggling with, maybe it's simply opening up to how we're really doing right now. Maybe despair or arrogance has taken a strong foothold in your life in a different way. We're becoming unwilling to confess to others how we're really doing. We're having a slow time confessing we can't live the Christian life in our own strength. Maybe this morning, if we were honest, we're having a hard time opening up about our sinful past in order to get real help from people who really care. A struggle about opening up about fears and anxieties we have that are controlling our life virtually every day. Opening up about temptations we're facing to quit on God, quit on Jesus, quit on the church, maybe even quit on life altogether. Friends, maybe the evil and injustice and suffering around you and I might be actually showing up on the inside as well. Sometimes when we pay attention too much to the evil, sin, and disappointment around us, the Lord starts to show us that some of those same things are in our own hearts. Friends, whatever difficulties we're facing today, whatever difficulties we'll be facing tomorrow and in the years ahead, how are you staying encouraged without becoming prideful and self-reliant? 
How are you preventing yourself from becoming so discouraged that you resign into chronic pessimism and hopeless despair? Well, it wasn't just Pastor Andy that drew out that amazing and timeless word of wisdom, trust God, not yourself, but it was also the Apostle Paul who conveyed many of the same things to his young disciple, Timothy. We've been studying First and Second, or Second Timothy for the last six or seven weeks or so, and Paul has been laying out wisdom after wisdom, and now this morning we'll look at realistic expectations of what Paul told Timothy that is to come, as well as the type of people he should identify and avoid. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 578. If you don't have a Bible at home you can read, you can take that Bible as a gift from our church to you. 2 Timothy 3 is where we're going to be at this morning. Over the last six to seven weeks, we've been studying Paul's second letter to Timothy in the New Testament. And throughout this letter, which is Paul's last letter, he would write before he would be martyred under the Roman emperor Nero. We've been studying invaluable words of encouragement, warning, and wisdom for the Christian life. We've been studying this invaluable and timeless words of instruction for Timothy, who was in pastoral leadership there in Ephesus. But as we've been studying together, we have found out many of these same things are applicable to our own life as we're trying to be faithful and persevere in discipling the next generation for the cause of Jesus Christ, his mission, for his glory. Last week, we left off in 2 Timothy 2, 20 to 26. And from that section, we learned this crucial spiritual truth. The more Christ-like we become, in our character, and in our convictions, the more useful to the Lord we become in ministering to others. In other words, Paul would remind Timothy that both his doctrine and his life would be equally important if he was going to be useful in the hands of the Redeemer, if he was going to be useful to seeing his opponents come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be rescued from the snare of the devil. But this time, friends, Paul continues to paint with a very dark brush greater oppositions to come in Timothy's life and ministry that will be forecasted with more fierce and more evil opposition in the days ahead. Look at me in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. But understand this. Then in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. 
For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. This is God's word. Have you ever heard someone say, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse? It did. Well, that's in essence what's going on here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You see, if you look down with me from last week's sermon in chapter 2, Paul was highlighting for Timothy this dark reality that people who oppose the gospel and people who oppose faithful teachers of the gospel, they do so not primarily because they're in a bad mood. Not primarily because they lack sufficient enough proof to believe Christianity. No. People reject the gospel and they reject those who faithfully proclaim the gospel because of their sin of unbelief combined with the power of the devil deceiving them in their spiritual blindness. Look back with me in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. 24 to 26, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 26, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That language there of being captured in the snare of the devil is used of wild animals that are tricked by a hunter, tracked down, and then captured alive. For human beings, we might hear stories of people being taken hostage by terrorist groups against their will, and then those terrorists brainwashing them, causing these hostages to then actually believe the lies and deception of these terrorists who have pumped this evil in their minds. Well, friends, that's exactly what happens in spiritual warfare, too. False religion, false teaching, false teachers, false converts, and lies and deception and anti-Christian ideologies and worldviews aim to do the very same thing, to brainwash our minds, to harden people's hearts against God and his word. You see, Paul was wisely here helping Timothy to understand that his ministry to people is not fundamentally an intellectual war. It's not fundamentally a religious power grab war. It's not a political campaign or a personality competition. No, the battle Timothy was up against is the same invisible spiritual battle all Christians everywhere are battling until we are with Christ in glory. You might say, what is that battle? And what is the armor we must put on if we're going to fight effectively in that battle? Paul said this in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So here in 2 Timothy 3, how does this invisible spiritual battle against satanic forces of evil, how does it actually show up in real time, flesh and blood, human interactions. Well, in verse 1, look down with me in verse 1, Paul sounds the siren loud and clear so as to forewarn Timothy of what's coming down the pike. He forewarns Timothy that the more faithful he aims to be in following Jesus, the bigger the target will be on his life the more ferocious the attacks are going to be in the days ahead. Look what he says. But understand this. Your translations might say know this or realize this. In other words, this is Paul telling him, Timothy, pay attention. Do not let what I'm about to say come in one ear and just fly out the other. Understand this. Realize this. Know this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. The last days. What last days is Paul referring to? And what will make these future days, these future times, so difficult? The last days is a phrase used multiple times in the New Testament to speak about the time period between Christ's first coming his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and his final return to the earth. For example, the phrase, the last days, is also used in Acts 2, verse 17, which fulfilled the prophecies of the Old, Old Testament prophet Joel, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It's used in Hebrews 1, verse 2, to speak about the culmination of how God had spoken in former days, but now has spoken with authority and finality through the atoning work resurrection from the dead, and ascension of his son, Jesus Christ, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father in power and glory. The last days is also used again in James 5, 3, 2 Peter 3, 3, encouraging believers who are undergoing all sorts of persecution and injustice, that in the last days, the opposition will become more fierce, but take heart, there is coming a last day that Jesus will judge the righteous and the wicked and they will no longer be able to harm you anymore. 
So with all that said, the last days, friends, are the days we're living in right now as Christians. The days that we're living in right now are the last days that we're living in as Christians. And that's not because of any world events going on right now. It's true because God's word says we are living in the last days. Christians who have been alive since the first coming to now and the Christians who will be alive until he comes back are living in the last days. And whether Jesus is coming back real soon on our concept of time or thousands and thousands and thousands of years from now, we know that his timetable is beyond our thoughts, it's beyond our ways, but rest assured, friends, God's timetable is always right on time. God's timetable is always right on time. Friends, that means there is never a point in our lives that God is freaking out. Isn't that comforting? God's never calling a counselor to get some advice. God doesn't need medication to balance out hormones and blood pressure. No, God's not worried. He's not wringing his hands at the earth. Somebody help me. No, the earth is his footstool, people. Angels go at his beckoning. Waves can only go so far. Demons tremble when his word is proclaimed. Our God is not freaking out. He is sovereign and in control. Human history has occurred, is being played out, and will be carried out exactly as he has ordained. Friends, that's why Peter, he offers a word of encouragement to us. What do we do in these last days until that final day? 2 Peter 3, 8 to 13, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, if Paul and Timothy were living in the last days in AD 60s, and we're living in the last days in 2023, what should we expect in the world until Jesus comes back like a thief in the night? Well, Paul specifically tells Timothy, did you see there in verse 1? There will come times of difficulty. Not if, not maybe, not likely. They will come, he says. The word difficulty in the ESV can also be translated in some of your Bibles as hard times or perilous times. The Greek word here is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it describes the two demon-possessed men that approach Jesus In Matthew chapter 8, Matthew 8, 28, we read, And when he, Jesus, came to the other side, 
to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce, that's the same word translated as difficult or perilous, that no one could pass that way. Friends, that means the types of challenges Timothy will face in his life and ministry, even well beyond after Paul is dead and gone. And the challenges that we as Christians will be facing in our life, friends, they're going to be fierce at times, perilous, hard to bear up, even hazardous, risky, and dangerous. Friends, whether that's Christians serving as missionaries in cross-cultural context, where they're being locked up, persecuted, and killed, or that's Christians living right here in the River Valley, working their nine to five, their Sunday to Saturday, working, living, and doing life with sinners. Friends, we all, whether we're in the third world country and the unreached people group or right here in our own hometown, we will face hard times. We will face dangerous, risky, hazardous times, not because I said so, but because God's word says so. Friends, what does that mean for us? That means we should have realistic expectations about what the Christian life is really about. I think American Christians are soft. Soft preaching creates hard hearts. Hard preaching creates soft hearts. We need more preaching and more churches planted that actually believe this thing. We are living in a day where there is a famine of the word of the Lord. Not because God has not spoken. It's because people have gotten bored indifferent and hardened to the gospel. Friends, we have an amazing opportunity in the midst of these difficult days to be a bright witness for King Jesus. Not because we're that bright, but because God's word is true. Friends, if Jesus went to a bloody cross to die for us, we should not expect ease in carrying our cross for him. Brothers and sisters, we are eagerly waiting on the future of the Lord's return, but we must understand the times of which we live right now. Now, on the one hand, we do not need to try to be like the world in order to understand the world, nor do we compromise our Christian convictions in order to try and get the world to like us. James 4.4 makes that clear, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. However, we cannot live with our heads buried in the sand as Christians. Friends, we cannot be ignorant of the world around us. There is a much bigger world out there than Fort Smith. There is a much bigger world. God's doing many glorious and amazing things, and there's horrific suffering all over the globe. We have got to get our heads out of the sand and understand if we're going to be a bright witness in a dark world, it is going to cost us to be invested, to be immersed, to be involved in the messy, fierce, dangerous world that real Christians and real non-Christians live in. 
And yet, at the same time, we can't be caught up in our present cultural moment. We cannot be caught up with just the present challenges of our lives today that we lose sight of the future. As Christians, we must understand the times that are ahead of us, too. We cannot be so wrapped up and emotionally straight-jacketed to every single headline in the newspaper, to every latest drama we hear on social media or some juicy gossip in a church. No, we have to stay focused and faithful, living in the present, in the difficult world right now, with the difficult days, with an eye towards the future. You might say, well, how do I do that, pastor? We should be first and foremost immersed in our Bibles. We should be immersed in hearing the word of the Lord before we listen to the words of men. We should be immersed in the words of the Lord before we listen to the anxieties and fears of our minds. We should be immersed in the word of the Lord before we listen and obey and trust the feelings of our hearts. We should be sitting humbly under the sound preaching from the pulpit every Lord's Day, asking the Lord to perform open heart surgery every time we hear his word proclaimed and expounded to us. Friends, that means we all must be eagerly gathering regularly with the saints to be stirred up to love and good deeds as we see the day of Christ's return drawing near. Beloved, these ordinary means of grace is how God helps us keep our head on straight. So many Christians run around like chickens with their heads cut off when the Bible is our trustworthy anchor. When this book has, which is never going to change, God's word is living and active more updated than any newspaper you'll ever read. If that is anchoring our soul, then Christians will not be running around freaking out. Their heads will be sewed on tight or sober-minded, the Bible would say. Dr. Tony Evans double-clicks on the importance of gathering with the church so that we keep our heads on straight. Listen to what he says. People say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And they are right. Salvation is through faith alone and Christ alone. You also don't have to go home to be married. But stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected. Friends, and all this talk about the last days and the return of Christ and the importance of the Bible and gathering with the church, that means we should not get our theology or our eschatology from CNN or Fox or reading the Left Behind series from 30 plus years ago. Rather, we should study the scriptures daily in their context in the grand arc of scripture and discover what it instructs us about. Human depravity, the sovereignty of God, human suffering, the brevity of life, the promise of Christ's return, the mission of the church, and how all these realities impact how we live our lives today. So friends, how are you doing living today in light of the last day? Would others describe your life and my life right now as distracted and distressed or focused and dependent on the Lord. Friends, pray that God would cause us to be more of the latter 
rather than the former. Paul had more to say about these difficult days ahead and the difficulties Timothy was going to be facing in his own life and ministry. And Paul does that by expounding on these difficult days through describing different types of sinful attitudes and sinful actions that will characterize sinners living in the last days. Now, on the one hand, let me just go ahead and just say what needs to be obvious in here. If you're new to church or haven't been in church in a while, or maybe you're walking here and going, maybe I'm not good enough to be in this church, uh, let me just go ahead and just slap us all across the face if that's the way we're thinking. We're all sinners. Every single one of us. We are like fish in water soaking wet in our sin, and we don't even realize how sinful we are. Every single one of us have dismally fall short of God's glory. We have missed the mark of his standard of righteousness, and we all deserve God's righteous judgment in eternal hellfire. Romans 1.18 says this very clear about what God thinks of our sin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So if we're all sinners and we deserve God's judgment, then where do we find hope? Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in verse 2 and following, Paul is not only describing what we are by nature as sinners, and really sinners in general throughout the world, specifically in this passage, he's also describing a particular type of people that have infiltrated the church and will continue to infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ. People who have snuck in unnoticed, masquerading as Christians, and even masquerading as Christian preachers and teachers too. People who live in unrepentant sin and see no concern with that hypocrisy. They're masquerading as followers of Christ when actuality they are self-deceived and deceiving others. Because Paul wants to be abundantly clear, direct, and pastorally helpful to Timothy, he spends the next several verses laying out 19 characteristics. This is not a 19-point sermon. Can I get an amen? amen? There we go. There we go. But there are 19 descriptions. I didn't write it. He did. And when you hear these, they are speaking of all sinners generally. That's kind of Romans 1 stuff. But he is specifically addressing what Timothy's facing in Ephesus. What these false teachers were like. And those who followed them. What their hearts were like. Their actions were like. And the influence they were having even in the church. We're going to walk through these through bullet point. Some of these will be a little more expanded. Others are going to be super quick, okay? So just got to keep your head down, jot down some notes if you want, and then we'll conclude with some application. Starting in verse 2, Paul says, People will be, Timothy, lovers of self. Lovers of self. They are self-centered. They are full of themselves. They look out primarily for their interest, and their desires at the expense of ignoring and using and abusing others. They are church-going narcissists. They are masters 
at turning every conversation, every point of conflict, every form of suffering, every story back on hallowing and praising and drawing attention to themselves. They are master manipulators who are always the hero and star of all their stories. And others are just the extras filling in the background. They are experts at blame shifting, experts at manipulating people's emotions to feel sorry for them, even to those who already make an idol out of them. William Cooper once said, there is no greater enemy to the love of God than being a lover preeminently of oneself. If self is loved, admired, and idolized, it is the worst idol in the world. This is an idol in a secret place, continually adored. This sets men upon God's throne and un-God's God by deifying themselves. People will be lovers of self. Second, he says in verse 2, lovers of money. People will be lovers of money, Timothy. This probably doesn't need much explanation. Instead of using money, God blesses us with to bless others. They use people and even use religion in order to fleece the sheep and get rich. Isn't this exactly how Jesus described the Pharisees in his ministry? Luke 16, 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. People will be lovers of money. He goes on, verse 2, people will be proud, proud. This is a self-promoting and boastful person. And yet, friends, do not think you and I are off the hook. Pride can also show up in varying forms of self-pity as well. Pride, friends, you need to get this, is an abomination to God. He hates it. He resists the proud. Jesus says those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Pride is always a hard issue before it's anything else. Pride shows up virtually in every argument that is centered around someone or ourselves not getting our way. Listen to James 3, 14 to 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James goes on to say in James 4, verses 1 and following, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passion. Friends, sometimes God does not answer our prayers because our hearts are full of pride when we pray those prayers. We don't want God to answer prayers that we offer from a prideful heart. If he did that, it would show that he doesn't love us, that he would give us over to our own delusion. 
Friends, sinful human pride is buried deep within our hearts. God is the only one who can scuba dive to the bottom darkness of our prideful hearts. Friends, God shows us our pride so that we do not harm others and give him a bad name in the process. Friends, of all things, religious pride is especially repugnant to God. A self-righteous heart is a prideful heart that worships not God, but oneself. Religious pride shows up where we have too high of an opinion of ourselves and too low of a view of Jesus' church. Jared Wilson says this type of pride shows up in church life, especially when we get angry and leave churches when our personal preferences are not being met. He says, if your commitment to church is contingent on all your preferences, it's not God you go there to worship, but yourself. Pride can lead us to view the church as a platform to accommodate our ministry, our gifts, rather than a place of humble service to bless others. Friends, pride can also show up in religious circles when we base our worth to God on our performance, to how good or how not so good we've done that day for the Lord. Friends, do you realize that some of the anxiety and fear that we experience on a daily basis is anxiety and fear that Jesus never intended us to bear? I have found perfectionistic people and those of us, and I'm putting myself included, who have a propensity to base our joy and peace off our performance in our parenting, in our ministry, in our work, our work performance, how our colleagues speak about us or don't speak about us, how we want people to applaud us or they frown at us, whatever it is, we base all our peace and joy off those things. Friends, that is self-inflicted torture. Michael Reeves puts it this way, self-dependence is also a fertile soil for discontentment and anxiety. Vaunting pride often conceals a deep sense of inferiority and self-loathing. The mask is put on for a reason. Simply put, when our righteousness and acceptance before God or man is dependent on our performance, the worry will always be whether we have performed sufficiently well. Seasons of success fuel pride are usually punctuated with moments of uneasy, sometimes crushing doubt. Self-reliant Christianity is workaholic, hamster-wheel Christianity, and that can never be a contented place. Friends, pride can show up as early as a two-year-old child and stay in our hearts in our 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s. Pride can lead us to become too easily impressed with ourselves. And pride can lead us to think too poorly of ourselves. Both of them are falling off the same problem. Self-pity and self-aggrandizement are both pride. People will be proud. Verse 2, he goes on to arrogant. Arrogant, this word is basically a cousin of pride. Its aim is to always be outdoing others for the purpose of despising them, looking down on them treating them poorly and disrespectfully in an effort to puff up our egos. 
people will be arrogant. Verse 2, he goes on to say people will be abusive. Uh, This word in our English Bibles comes from where we get our word blasphemous. It speaks of ungodly speech that can show itself through demeaning people. We might say cutting people down, dehumanizing them, using hateful, harmful, abrasive words to put fear into another person and crush their spirits. People will be abusive. Verse 2, he goes on, disobedient to their parents. Now, this is not all that hard to explain. If you're a parent, you're going to go, yeah, this is part of the sermon where I'm going to like, yeah, feel better about myself. And then I have to remind you, you were once a child too. So raise your hand if you've ever been disobedient to your mom and dad. All right. Everyone's drinking down that big old glass of humility right now. But this isn't hard to understand. In a fallen, rebellious to God world, children by nature are living in homes with sinning parents too, and they will by nature never have to be taught to sin. They will just be taught how to be sneaky with their sin. Children don't need to be taught to sin. They just need the opportunity to act on it. That's because by nature, we all are born in sin. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Fathers, mothers, we should pray for God to convert our children. Only God can change their hearts from turning on themselves and sin and turning to Christ. And yet, whether they remain unbelievers throughout their childhood or they get converted, parents have been uniquely charged to teach and discipline their children. Listen to me, church. The home, not the school. The home, not the church. The home, not the family psychiatrist. The home is the first place where children learn how to submit to God-ordained authority. That is God's plan from the very beginning, and it has not changed. Discipline, both through teaching and correction, and through corporal punishment in age-appropriate ways, are expressions of love for our children. Members of CCBC, pray for the parents to have wisdom. Pray that we would all discipline our children in love, discipline them diligently, and do so with self-control and patience. The gospel will become even more believable to our kids if they see Jesus working in and through mom and dad. Nonetheless, parenting will be hard. And Paul told Timothy, you're going to have moms and dads pastoring. You're pastoring in Ephesus, and you need to be aware of some of those difficult days means children will be rebellious. Verse 2, he goes on, people will be ungrateful. Thanksgiving is a holiday that many will celebrate, but only some, relatively speaking, will give thanks to God in their thanksgiving. Uh, Many people grow up in life, and as our culture is becoming more and more antagonistic to Christianity, they will give thanks to the kind of nebulous, ambiguous, invisible nothing. I'm thankful. To who? I'm just thankful. Good for you, but you should be thankful to the one who made you. (laughs) You see, a lack of gratitude 
produces a culture that breathes the air of feeling entitled. People will be ungrateful. Verse 2, people will be unholy. It means ungodly, separated from God and swimming in the slop of sin and seeing nothing wrong with it. Verse 3, people will be heartless, hard-hearted, lacking sympathy and affection for human beings. Verse 3, people will be unappeasable. It means relentless, unstoppable, irreconcilable. They are unforgiving and have no desire and no care of making wrong things right. They cannot be satisfied unless people meet their needs on their terms. Verse 3, people will be slanderous. It means to falsely accuse. It means to bear false witness of your neighbor. It, it means to speak half-true and flagrant lies about someone in order to harm their reputation. Friends, slander is the love language of the devil. Slander is the love language of the devil. Friends, when we slander or we tolerate slander and support those who are, we're taking sides with Satan and not with God. Verse 3, people will be without self-control. They have no seatbelt on their emotions and words. It's a person who's unstable, out of line, unpredictable, and they don't have a grip on themselves or reality. Verse 3, they will be brutal. People will be brutal. They're savages, inhumane, beast. When human beings are given over to their darkened hearts and evil desires, mankind acts like wild animals who love death and hate life. If you don't believe that to be true, go talk to the average law enforcement. Go talk to a police officer. Go talk to child protection services. Go talk to military personnel. Go talk to people who work in hospitals. They're on the front lines of seeing pure evil. And the news only gives us little edited previews of what's really going on in the depravity of our world. People will become brutal savages. And that is the world we live in. He goes on to say, people will be not loving good. They despise all that God says is good and they no longer can see evil as evil. Verse four, they'll become treacherous. People will be backstabbers, traitors. Think of Judas Iscariot with Jesus. He was the disciple who betrayed or was a traitor to Jesus. Verse four, people will become reckless. It speaks of someone who will not stop at nothing in order to get what they want. And then verse four, they will be swollen with conceit. Pride and arrogance gone unchecked makes our heads become three times the size of our bodies and we are headstrong, big-headed, full of hot air, steamrolling everyone in our path, swollen with conceit. In verse 4, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They are hedonist, pleasure seekers whose fleshly desires are insatiable. One Puritan author says this, the worldly man's trinity is the lust of pleasure, riches, and glory. At the root of our depravity, friends, at the root of the hearts of these false teachers, unless God changes us, we live in a world that is anti-God, anti-gospel, anti-Jesus, anti-church, anti-family, anti-marriage, 
and anti-humanity. The greatest two commandments are to love God with all you got and all you have and love your neighbor as yourself. But these false teachers who had infiltrated the church, who's being described in this section, they are influencing people on the inside towards a godless, anti-church, anti-gospel, anti-Jesus direction. Friends, Satan is the father of lies and he knows how to trick us in so many ways. Mark Jones says this very daunting reality that is so true. In our temptations, Satan wants us to call evil good and good evil. He clothes sin with the appearance of virtue. Greed is saving. Lust is love. Abortion is self-care. Drunkenness is medication. And laziness is rest. Satan makes use of nice false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, to tempt God's people into doctrinal error. Satan also ensnares us with things that are lawful. Hard work can be a temptation to us who want riches, glory, and honor. Or hard work can keep a father away from caring for his family. Family and friends, work and sports, education and music are all fuels in the engine of Satan's temptations. He does not even need to allure us with something obviously sinful, but can take good things and twist them because we are prone to abuse good gifts. Beloved, that was true for these ugly and depraved false teachers. And friends, it can be true of us. In our sinful depravity, friends, we are by nature lovers of pleasure, lovers of self, lovers of money, rather than lovers of God. Friends, what do we need? We need God Almighty to bring revival to everyone in this building, everyone in our church, Everyone in our country, we need God to do what only God can do. He is the only one who can plumb the depths, the scuba diver to the bottom of our depraved hearts and give us new ones. God and God alone can do this. In his amazing mercy through Christ, he can turn us from being self-focused to God-exalting. And friends, he's done that by sending us a savior, a powerful savior, a loving savior, one who took on the sins we just read about, the sins you and I have committed. He took them on himself. He took on the punishment that these sins righteously deserve. And he satisfied God's wrath for all of us who would forsake all confidence in our own performance forsake all hope in anything to make us right with God and put our faith and faith alone in Jesus. God raised him from the dead and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father and now his spirit comes into our hearts and grants hell-deserving sinners repentance. He grants hell-deserving sinners the ability to be snatched from the snares of the devil. Friends, before we try to change the world for Jesus, we might ought to spend some time praying that God would change our hearts first for Jesus. 
to my non-Christian friend, you know what that means for you? Come as you are. Come as you are. Ruthless, heartless, unappeasable, hateful, brutal, any of the things we just talked about, these are the kind of sinners he knows how to clean up. Who wrote this letter? A former persecutor of Christians. The Apostle Paul was once a hater of everything Jesus was doing. And God took that murder-approving, prideful, insolent man and made him an instrument mightily used in the hands of the Redeemer. God is in the business of taking the filthiest sinners among us, which means ourselves, and doing what only he can do, making us lovers of him and lovers of all that which is good. You see, Susan Hunt makes a valid point here. Cultural transformation happens in our homes, neighborhoods, and communities when God's people love him and love each other and face the world with his truth and love. You see, these false teachers, though, they had a hollow spiritual life. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. You might have thought I was reading off a list from like the top five FBI's most wanted list in 2 Timothy 3. He's talking about church people. He's talking about church members. He's talking about deacons, pastors, missionaries, Bible study leaders, Christian counselors. He's talking about people that you and I on face value have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. These false teachers were fire with no heat, an electrical outlet with no power, a hollow tree that had paper mache fruit hanging on it, a bank safe with no money in it, an empty Christmas gift with a nothing in it, lots of talk, no walk, profession of faith, but it was pretend. J.C. Ryle once said, they are Christians, no doubt, in name, and yet there is neither substance nor fruit in their Christianity. There is but one thing to be said. They are formal Christians. Their religion is an empty form. In other words, friends, these were false converts who were touted, paraded on the church rolls, serving in leadership. But friends, they were not converted. They weren't born again. They were the very definition of religious hypocrisy. Do Christians sin? Absolutely. But if someone claims to be a follower of Jesus and never show any real, evident, growing fruit in their life, in an actuality, it's the total opposite. They're self-deceived. One author said this, hypocrisy happens when you watch your doctrine but not your life. Beloved, that's why it's so important that each one of us come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ personally and experientially. 
Just because someone is a pastor, just because someone teaches a Bible study, just because someone serves in a church office, just because they're nice, southern, and a resident of Arkansas and like Cain's chicken, it doesn't truly matter. Do they know the Lord? You must be born again. You must be changed from the inside out or we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, these were the type of wolves in sheep's clothing that were messing around with Christ's sheep in Ephesus. And this same nonsense goes on in churches all around the world today. What kind of damage did they try to do? We'll just briefly look down in verses 6 to 9. He describes these false teachers by comparing them to opponents that opposed Moses back in the Old Testament. We don't know much about Janus and Jambres, not Michael Janus, of course, but Except for Jewish sources outside of Scripture, tradition says they were probably two Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses back in the book of Exodus as Moses was preparing to lead Israel out of Egypt. Nonetheless, these were spiritual con artists. They were masquerading and tricking everyone, but they weren't tricking God, they weren't tricking Paul, and Paul wanted to make sure Timothy wouldn't be tricked either. In fact, this is what they were out to do. They took advantage of weak women. This speaks primarily to their vulnerability, perhaps maybe their spiritual immaturity. Now, whether they were single, divorced, or widowed, we're not told. Either way, these hucksters looked over the flock and tried to find the weakest of the bunch, manipulate them, get them in bed, fool them. Perhaps even these women were infatuated with men in spiritual leadership. That's why they were such easy prey. These men knew how to draw them in, and these women liked what they saw. They said exactly what they wanted to hear. Either way, it was a recipe for disaster. Guile and gullibility is the devil's playground. Timothy had to be aware, and so should we. Beloved, there is no basis to allow false teachers to remain teaching in a local church. Either have them fired publicly rebuked, excommunicated, or you leave that church quick, fast, in a hurry. A church where wolves are leading Christ's sheep is a very dangerous place for real Christians. If you're a woman here today and you are single, married, or divorced, we want you to know we love you, but I want you to understand as elders, we have a particular responsibility to protect you. If you don't have a spiritual head at home that's protecting you, leading you, guiding you, shepherding you, there is a particular vulnerability we know you share. Not because you're weak in morality, but you don't have someone to have that covering for you. That's why the elders are here. That's why we want every man in this church to be a protector, a leader, and encouraging our sisters in the Lord. Friends, how do we end a sermon where really Paul just lays it on thick with how dark and depraved we can be and how these false teachers can be in the church. Two questions I want to ask as we end this sermon. Question number one, how should we respond to those who are false teachers or anyone who tries to bring division in Christ's church? That's what they were doing. Look at what he says in verse 5. Verse 5 says this, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. 
avoid such people. The word literally means turn away from them. Stop listening to them. Don't give them the time of day. Earlier, Alan read from Romans 16, where Paul says to watch out for those who cause divisions. Their smooth talk and flattery deceive the naive. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Members of CCBC, pray for your elders. We're called by God to protect the flock from wolves in sheep's clothing. That means you will probably never find out 60% of the drama, pushback, and heartache that happens in pastoral ministry because that's to preserve peace in this body. You go up to any special forces person in the military, any police officer, they're not going to be telling everyone of all the danger going on in a community. It would send the community in panic and freaking out. That's the point of them being in leadership. But pray for your elders. Pray that we protect the flock. Pray that each member of the church to be proactive in helping each other follow Jesus and to help us be discerning of what we listen to and who we listen to. Friends, we should all daily deny ourselves because the love of self is our greatest enemy. Question number two, how do you stay encouraged in the Christian life without becoming prideful and self-reliant? How do you prevent yourself from becoming so discouraged that you resign into chronic pessimism and even hopeless despair? Let me give you five really fast answers. Number one, trust in God, not yourself. Trust in God, not yourself. Ask God to use your difficulties to learn how to trust him and not yourself. Friends, we are culprits of sin. We have been guilty of these sins in 2 Timothy 3. We have caused problems in other people's lives, and we've been victims of other people's sin in our lives. Okay? Now watch this. This gets me in trouble in some church context. It is possible, and it does happen, to be the victim of someone else's sin. And God sees it. But as Christians, we do not live with a victim mentality. Difficult days are normal for the Christian life, and God can use even the most difficult challenges we face to teach us how to trust in him and not ourselves. Number two, face the facts before you, even if they're difficult to hear. Face the facts before you, even if they're difficult to hear. Don't bury your head in the sand. Don't indulge in gossip hour, but don't be in denial of the world around you. Face the cold, hard facts. As Paul told Timothy, we should remind one another of those clear facts, even if they're hard to face. Number three, pray for discernment on who to listen to and follow. Pray for discernment on who to listen to and follow. Uh, Christians need examples, right? We need to find faithful examples. But what does Jesus say? Beware of wolves in what? Sheep's clothing, which means talk is cheap. Look for fruit. The best of men are still men at best. Imitate those who are faithful and do not imitate them when they don't look like Jesus. Number four, 
wait on God to reveal the true colors of someone's character. Did you notice there in verse 9? But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Friends, we should not let our first impressions about someone be our final conclusion. Good men and good women are typically not forthcoming and boastful. Their character will speak volumes for themselves. And character typically shows up in the midst of trials and over long periods of time and testing. Friends, do not be easily impressed with loud, fast, and emotive people. They are flashes in the pan. Be patient. Truth and time walk hand in hand. Test everything you hear with the scriptures. Be led by wisdom in the word, not emotions or circumstances. God will make it clear over time. We'll understand it better by and by. Number five, no matter how hard life becomes, Christ will hold you fast. No matter how hard life becomes, Christ will hold you fast. Do you fear your faith will fail? Christ will hold you fast. Do you fear the hard days to come? Christ will hold you fast. Do you fear your heart will grow cold? Christ will hold you fast. CCBC, trust in God and not yourself. Trust in God and not yourself. Let's pray. Father, difficult days have been in the last days for thousands of years. And yet you are clear and honest with the graphic nature of our own depravity and the depravity around us. Father, you've called us to be a discerning people, to not be easily impressed with ourselves or other people. Lord, cause us to be a discerning church, cause us to be a humble church, cause us to be faithful, to help one another, no truth from error. And Father, we do pray that anyone among us who maybe is convicted today, that they've lived a life with an appearance of godliness but deny its power. We pray that today they would be born again by your Spirit, that you would turn them from death to life. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to sear in our hearts the promise that you will hold us fast. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.